Today's scripture reading is Job chapter 42, which can be found on page 446 in your pew Bibles. This is God's word. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Job chapter 42. As we look at that together this morning, and let's pray and uh, ask God to meet us. Lord, we thank you that whenever we open your word, you are speaking. So God, we pray this morning that your spirit would give us ears to hear your voice and eyes to see you as Job saw you. So Lord, meet us. Speak to us, open our hearts to hear you and to be changed. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it shouldn't surprise us, but it almost always does when you realize the difference between hearing about something and seeing it with your own eyes. So, for instance, you hear about some great new movie people are talking about and and then you go and see it, and it's even better than you thought it would be, or sometimes way worse than what you thought it would be. But there's this difference between hearing about something and seeing it. 
uh, or you're on vacation and you hear about some beautiful scenic uh, attraction and then you get there and and w- there are no words to express the beauty of what you see. A couple of years ago, we had a family reunion in South Dakota. And of course, the main attraction in South Dakota is Mount Rushmore. But on the way to Mount Rushmore, there's the Badlands. And despite their name, they're actually quite beautiful from what you hear. Uh, They must be bad in kind of the 1980s Michael Jackson sense of the term or something. But uh, so you decide, you're on I-90, on your way to Mount Rushmore, and you decide to divert your course because you've heard that the Badlands are beautiful. And so you, you head south, add two hours to your trip, and as you're driving there, you kind of wonder, are we going to be wasting our time with this little detour? Uh, you're, you're going along, and you can't really see anything for a while. And then all of a sudden, the earth literally just opens up before you. And there's this massive canyon as far as the eye can see, these beautiful bluffs and valleys, and, and you're driving through this thing, and literally around every corner, you're just overcome with a fresh sense of awe at what you're taking in. You've never seen anything like it in your life. When the Badlands were but a rumor, you have ideas about them. When you finally see them, you realize that your ideas were small and unworthy of the true grandeur of that beauty. Now, that experience of realizing the difference between hearing something and seeing it is innocent enough if you're talking about a movie or even, you know, a canyon. But what if the subject is God? What if you realize the difference between having heard about God and seeing him more clearly, and in that realization you realize that your ideas about God have been small and unworthy of his true grandeur, or even worse, that your words about God have misconstrued or misrepresented him? Is there any recourse when we find out about that gap? That is the question that our passage raises this morning as we come to the conclusion of Job and the fruit of suffering. So throughout our overview, we've kind of done a kind of a a quick five-week overview of the book of Job. And and throughout this overview, we've summarized the book uh, in terms of five questions that it asks and answers. It doesn't always ask and answer the questions we ask about it. But it does raise questions, and and we've kind of summarized it with these five. The first one was, do we worship God merely because of what we get out of it? That was the question that the accuser raised in chapter 1. Does Job fear God for no reason? Which launched the whole story as Job, this righteous and upright man, is then stripped of everything he has, his family, his fortune, his health, even his friends, for no reason. Satan had accused him that if God would take those things away from him, he would curse God to his face. Instead, Job showed us that God is worthy of our worship, whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand. The second question came in Job's lament over his situation in chapter 3. Is it better to die 
or never have lived than to face such crushing misery in life. Why did I not die at birth? That was Job's question as he cried out to God. And, And the answer we saw there is that while God does not silence our cries of despair, life and death are ultimately in his hands and not ours. The third question stood at the heart of the debate between Job and his friends, which takes up most of the book, chapters 4 through 37. And that was this, can the righteous suffer? Can the righteous suffer? Who that was innocent ever perished? Asked Job's friends. And so in effort to explain the cause of Job's suffering, his friends assumed that because God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked, if Job's suffering, he must have done something really wrong. And so they reinforce this idea, really, in some ways, the accusation of Satan kind of from another angle, that that Job's suffering must be evidence of sin, some hidden wickedness. And so they want him to confess his sin and get on with life, just own it and move forward. But Job maintains his innocence. The righteous can, in fact, suffer. The cause of his suffering is not some hidden sin, but a hidden God, a God whom he longs to have an audience with because he knows that's the only one who can explain what's going on. Only God can make sense of our suffering. But because God doesn't seem to be operating according to Job's expectations, Job believes that God owes him an explanation for what he's doing. And that raised our fourth question, is God righteous when the righteous suffer? Has God wronged Job in some way? But instead of answering that question directly, when God finally speaks in chapters 38 to 41, he turns the tables on Job and instead calls him to the stand. Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? If you think that I owe you an explanation for how I run the world, then why don't we start by you telling me how it's run? And he asks Job these questions. And, and Job's, or excuse me, God's answer to Job shows us that, that though Job's conduct was in fact blameless, his understanding of God was flawed. He doesn't have enough information to evaluate God's ways. Rather, God is the only one who is wise enough to run the world, including our suffering within it. And that brings us to the final question here in chapter 42. So, is there any recourse when we find out all of a sudden that our thoughts or words are unworthy of God? When you come to that point of realization when we suddenly realize that we have been thinking and speaking of our situation as though we are big and God is small? Is there any remedy to our folly, any mercy or forgiveness? And as we're going to see, the answer to that is yes, absolutely, there is mercy for folly. But we'll also see that it's often the road of suffering that reveals our folly to us, our small thoughts of God, and opens our eyes to his true majesty and mercy. 
And so the passage before us, chapter 42, divides up very nicely, cleanly into three different sections. First, Job's response to God's speech in verses 1 to 6. Then God's response to Job's friends in verses 7 to 9. And then finally, God's restoration of Job's family and fortune in verses 10 to 17. And we'll look first at, at Job's response to God. So God has given him two speeches just before this. Chapters 38 to 41 contain two speeches. We looked at the first one last week um, where God interrogated Job in order to demonstrate, to show to him that he didn't have enough information to really weigh in on how God was running the world. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And Job's response to that first speech was kind of a humbled silence. He simply had nothing to say. But apparently, or for some reason, either he didn't get the point or God wasn't quite finished because he gives a second speech in chapters 40 and 41, speaks to him again out of the world, out of the whirlwind, uh, and this time with a poetic description of what are either two mythological or maybe heavenly creatures. We don't exactly know what behemoth and leviathan are, but we know that, that as majestic and impossible to tame as they are, so even harder is it to tame the God who made them. And that's the point that, that God makes uh, to Job in his second speech. If, if you can't approach or tame these, why do you think you can get a handle on me? And this time, Job responds, not really just to the second speech, but to both of them. And he begins in verse 2 by acknowledging God's majesty. So look at chapter 42, verse 2. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job, at the end of the story, finally gets the message that God's power and wisdom are unlimited and unstoppable. We cannot contain him. We cannot even dare to explain him apart from what he has revealed to us. And so next he confesses his folly in verse 3. And he begins here by quoting God's question to him at the beginning of the first speech in chapter 38. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Well, Job answers, me. I'm the one who's guilty. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job acknowledges God's majesty in verse 2 and then confesses his failed attempt to understand and explain God's ways, even his failed attempt at kind of holding God to account. He recognizes that he's simply out of his league. He's like a a preschooler with a little bit of Lego experience trying to correct an accomplished architect on his design. That's what he sees here. So he acknowledges God's majesty. He confesses how far short he falls of that majesty. And then finally, he responds to God's majesty in repentance. So look at verse 4. Again, Job starts here by quoting God's speech. 
this time the, the opening summons for both speeches. God had said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. So here's Job's answer to God's question. But instead of explaining how the cosmos works, she asked him in the first speech, or instead of explaining how to tame God like Leviathan, as he asked him in the second speech, Job explains what this whole experience of suffering and then encountering God has done to him. The fruit of the suffering. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job, the blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil, now realizes that for all of his righteousness, his relationship with God up to this point had been like knowing a rumor about God. He had heard about God. He had drawn conclusions about God based on what he heard. Most of those conclusions were true. But when he finally saw God through his suffering, his mind was blown. There's a big difference between knowing a rumor about someone and actually knowing the person. I mean, we read stories about people every day, you know, politicians and athletes and celebrities, and, and we form lots of opinions about those people based on what we read. It's like having a relationship with a rumor. How surprised would we be to actually get to know someone that we've read about, uh, to have a real relationship with them? How different would we find out that they actually are from what we've heard? And how much more is that true when it comes to a relationship with God? Which kind of makes you wonder about our relationships with God. I mean, if, if, if Job, whom God himself praises for his integrity and righteousness, if he can live such a good life based on such a small knowledge of God, what about us? What about our relationship? To what extent is my relationship with God based on a rumor rather than a real personal experience? It is possible to have good theology and do good things and be well thought of in the church, but to have a shallow relationship with God. Now, that doesn't mean that your faith isn't real. I mean, it is possible to go through the motions and not mean it or to know the right answers and not believe them, but that's not what we're talking about. It's possible to have a healthy, albeit shallow relationship with God such that God still feels more like a rumor than a person. That doesn't mean that your faith isn't real. It doesn't even mean that your faith is weak. What it probably means is that your faith is untested. Because the road to encountering the divine in the book of Job is not some sort of mystical experience or some sacred liturgy or some really disciplined hard work or even a miraculous event. The road to seeing God in the book of Job is suffering. 
with suffering. It was Job's suffering that exposed his folly, his small thoughts of God. Apart from this experience, he would have never had this conversation with God. He would have never had occasion to realize how short-sighted his view of God really was. It was his suffering that finally opened his eyes to the majesty of God. And I think if you spend time with seasoned saints, people who have walked with God through you know, a lifetime, you will find that same pattern is true, that it was adversity that deepened the faith and showed us how real God was. I know in my own life that it's through the absolute saddest experiences that, that we have had, uh, specifically the loss of now three unborn children, that I have seen God's love. I have felt his presence and understood his promise that a day is coming when death will finally be swallowed up and all things will be made new. And I have to confess that I never really longed for heaven or for God to put all things right in his new creation with him at the center of it. I never really longed for that until we experienced loss in this world. It was suffering that opened our, God, our eyes to the beauty of who God is and what he promises. And so Job had heard about God. And now, through his suffering, he has seen him. And his response, finally, after acknowledging and, and confessing, is repenting. In verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it's important to understand that Job is not repenting of the so-called mystery sin that his friends accused him of. He's not repenting of that. He's repenting of his foolishness. He's repenting of his presumption that God owed him an explanation for how he runs the universe. He's repenting of having small thoughts of God and big thoughts of himself. And even here, that repentance is an act of worship. He's worshiping God as he realizes his true beauty and majesty. So is there any recourse for folly? Of course there is. Is there any recourse for the folly of his friends? Well, what we see in the next two sections is that, yes, uh, there is mercy. That suffering not only opens our eyes to God's majesty, it also opens our eyes to God's mercy in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have known. And we see this mercy in some surprising ways. We see God's mercy to Job interwoven with God's mercy to Job's friends. But before his friends receive mercy, God first shows them how desperately they actually need it. So verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, 
as my servant Job has. God speaks now. God responds to Job's friends. And it's kind of interesting that he phrases his rebuke to the friends the way that he does, uh, in contrasting their words to Job's words, because God just got done telling Job that his words were without knowledge, that he had spoken foolishly. So, so how is Job different than what his friends had done? He, he kind of vindicates Job here as he accuses the friends, but how is Job different? The difference is that Job never said anything untrue about God. He was right to insist upon his innocence, and he was right to assert that God was the one who brought this suffering on him. His folly was assuming that because that didn't make sense, God owed him an explanation. Job's friends, on the other hand, misrepresented God with their words. They thought that they were defending God's reputation by accusing Job of doing wrong, by, by condemning him. They rightly understood that, that God punishes the wicked, but they wrongly applied that to Job's situation by turning this, the, the sentence around and saying, well, if you're wicked, God must be punished, or if you're suffering, God must be punishing you. You must be wicked. They wrongly applied it to Job. And, and so by telling Job again and again that, he, that God is punishing you and that that's why all of this has happened, they spoke wrongly about God. They misrepresented him. And that did not go unnoticed by God. So he rebukes Job's friends. They too have failed to appreciate God's majesty, that his ways are higher than our ways. But then he reaches out to them in mercy. He reveals his majesty and then immediately on the heels of it, he speaks mercy. He makes a way for forgiveness through the intercession of none other than the one they slandered, Job. Verse 8. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Is there any recourse, any remedy when we speak or think foolishly about God? Praise God, the answer is yes. His mercies are new every morning. And that is such good news because so often in our situations we think small thoughts of God and we even say small things about God. God. But what's interesting here is that not only do we see that there is mercy, we also learn something about how God's mercy works in Job's example. So notice first that there is a price. There is a price for this mercy. A holy and majestic God cannot simply ignore sin. Sin is an offense against his throne and his person. And so it must be punished for justice to be served. The friends were absolutely right. God punishes wickedness and sin. 
And so true forgiveness, therefore, requires a substitute. The bulls and rams died in place of Job's friends. Very much like the Passover lamb dies in place of Israel, God's firstborn son. Just like Jesus, the Lamb of God, died in our place on the cross. There is a price for mercy. Second, there is a priest, a righteous advocate, someone able to approach God on behalf of the sinner in in order to offer an acceptable sacrifice for sins. Just as Job interceded for his children in chapter 1, now he intercedes for his friends in chapter 42, which is humbling for them, no doubt, uh, but shows us not only the mercy of God, but also the mercy of Job, that he would act on their behalf. But again, it not only shows us that, it shows us, it points us forward to the mercy of Christ, who was not only blameless, but was actually sinless who was not just a priest, but was the great high priest, who Hebrews tells us entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There are so many ways in which the story of Job is meant to point us forward to the story of Jesus. Or as Tim Keller is fond of putting it, Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his numbskull friends. Doug O'Donnell summarizes the story of Job like this. Tell me if you've heard this story before. There was a righteous man. This man by God's set purpose, was handed over to satanic-inflicted sufferings. This man, in his suffering, was mocked and mistreated. This man prayed for his enemies, for those who persecuted him. This man, after a costly, perfect, substitutionary blood sacrifice, became a priestly mediator between God and sinners. This man was fully and publicly vindicated by God. Does that story sound familiar? That's the story of Jesus. Which isn't to say that Job was Jesus or that even that Job was just like Jesus. Job was a human and a sinner just like us. But through the story of Job, our eyes are opened to see both the majesty and the mercy of of Christ our Savior, the majesty and mercy of God that are ultimately displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of his Son. God's mercy to Job and his friends is a foretaste of God's mercy for all through Christ. If we will acknowledge his majesty, that he is God and we are not, and confess our folly, the sin we have committed and fallen short before him. Repent of our sin and cling to him in faith. The story of Job is the story of the gospel. 
But what about Job's suffering? What about everything that he's lost? I think if we were to ask Job that question at this point in the story, he would reply, what about it? What about it? As far as Job is concerned, the story can end right here. He has dropped his case. It's not that his situation is no longer painful or that he, you know, his intellectual problem has been resolved. They're just no longer that important. His eyes have been opened to God. He is content amid his suffering as long as he has God. He is an embodiment of Paul's words in Philippians 3.7. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. So as far as Job is concerned, the story could be over. But it's not over. And it's good that it's not over. Because it shows us that while we may not understand what God is doing in the moment... He will be faithful to make all things right in the end. And so we see God's majesty and mercy come together in the restoration of Job in verses 10 to 17. This is Job's ultimate vindication. God had cleared his name before his friends, uh, vindicating him of the false charges. But now he demonstrates both Job's innocence and God's mercy on a public scale by restoring double what was lost in the beginning. Verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. We see the comfort of his family in verse 11. Their presence, you know, this family who had abandoned him, here they are, giving sympathy and comfort and and sharing out of their generosity. Then we see the restoration of his fortune in verse 12, where each of the livestock is literally doubled from the numbers that we read in chapter 1. Then the restoration of his family in verses 12 to 15, 10 children again seven sons and and three daughters and he elaborates on the daughters and the significance of them which isn't to suggest by the way that children are somehow replaceable that's that's not the point anybody who's lost a child knows that's not true the picture rather is of wholeness of a broken life being put back together and of grace of a restored life that flourishes even greater than before. And so the author concludes, and after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. The proverbial happy ending, which might strike us as cliched or even feel like this kind of ending undoes the major point in the book that we don't worship god because of what we get out of it and that god isn't obligated to follow our ways 
But if we understand this conclusion as in terms of vindication, of declaring Job's innocence, of making right what was wrong, we see that this is the proper and fitting conclusion to the story. For the world in Job's days, these are the categories in which vindication would have been understood, the restoration of what was lost. And in fact, we see that kind of language throughout both the Old and New Testaments, crescendoing with the great promise of Revelation 21, that the day is coming when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God does not always promise understanding. He doesn't always promise relief. But he does promise his presence. And he does promise to make all things right in the end. So your suffering, whatever it is, however long it has endured, however heavy it is to bear, your suffering is not unknown. Jesus bore it in his body and carried you with him on the cross. And your suffering will not be wasted. God will use it according to his purposes. It will bear fruit. Part of which is often to open our eyes to God's true majesty and mercy. And God will be faithful to restore what is lost in the end. To make all things new. As first Peter puts it, there is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray for endurance. We pray for mercy. We pray for your mercy to see you clearly, whatever our trial, and to trust you even when it doesn't make sense. To know that you are God and we are not. That you alone are wise enough to order this world 
and that even when we don't have a clue what you're doing, we can trust that we know you are good and you are sovereign and you are working all things for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Lord, may we learn not just from Job's example, but from what you revealed to Job, that you are good, that you are wise, that you are powerful, that your majesty is beyond our comprehension. And may we trust. May we trust. May we comfort one another and point one another to you as we walk together through trials to trust that you are good. And Lord, when we doubt it, when we hurt, when we are worn out, remind us of the cross. Remind us of that place where your majesty and your mercy met, the holiness of your name and the absolutely incredible grace of your love for sinners. Lord, remind us that, again, this this most evil, wicked event in all of human history was the, the vehicle through which you accomplished the greatest good in your creation, the saving of many souls. And so remind us of the cross and keep our eyes on Christ as we follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.